who else in my church can I not be their pastor? You know, in this moment, I'm not allowed to be her pastor. And I thought, if, you're, if your child, you know, uh, commits a crime and ends up in prison, I can still be their pastor. Um, if they're in prison and they decide to get married, I can be their pastor. Um, and I kept thinking, this is the only person I'm prohibited from being their clergy. Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I am interviewing Dwayne Anders. He is the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Boise, Idaho, um, also known as the Cathedral of the Rockies. And he uh, came to my attention via Ben Kramer. Um, I interviewed Ben Kramer for this podcast a while back, and he and I had been talking more recently, and he suggested that I talk to his senior pastor at the church that Ben is currently at um, about his position as an affirming LGBTQ pastor. Um, so we talk a little bit about what that means, um, how you know the definition of affirming versus accepting or welcoming. And we then get into how he came to be an affirming pastor and, you know, some of his perspective and the responses that he might give to someone with a more traditional view of marriage. I try to ask some of the questions that I think most people with that traditional view would ask of Dwayne and that uh, questions and ideas that I've heard over the years from people holding that view. I don't plan to interview anyone who to come on and say, and here's my traditional view and why I hold it. Because, quite frankly, we're all well familiar with that view and the arguments for it. Um, but maybe we don't know any pastors who are affirming, or we don't know any um, Christians who are affirming. Um, and maybe this is a new perspective that uh, we can try to understand and appreciate, um, even if we happen to disagree with it. And this is maybe a perspective we can even learn from, and we can continue to dialogue and have conversation um, as we try to navigate this complicated issue as Christians. Okay, so let's hear from Dwayne. So he starts off by introducing himself and telling a little bit about his background. All right. Hey, I'm Dwayne Anders. I'm one of the pastors here at Boise First United Methodist Church, the Cathedral of the Rockies. Okay. And Dwayne, could you tell the our listeners a little bit about your faith background and journey? Sure. Yeah, I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church um, in a little town in West Virginia. Um, a little church called Asbury United Methodist Church. It was one of the historic churches. Um, it's been there a couple hundred years. Uh, my early memories, we're one of those families. I always tell people I went to church in utero, so I've gone you know, <laughs> uh, my whole life. I've been in church, but it was a church in like my first grade year that tore down the uh, second or third sanctuary we had to build an, a newer one. And we tore down a very intimate um, classic sanctuary with stained glass and kind of that that intimate feel and built a long colonial sanctuary with no stained glass. And, and it kind of imprinted on in me that um, change is part of church and that growth is part of church. And sometimes um, methods change and, uh, and, and it's okay. Right. So that was kind of imprinted on me as a first grader, as I watched this uh, place that was very familiar, be destroyed and a new building go right in its place and be put up. And it was kind of like, okay, this is what churches do. 
<laughs> you know, and so that that taught me that churches are to grow, I guess I would say from an early beginning. Sure. That's really interesting. So um, this may be, you know, a, a longer story, um, but how what led the church to do that? Sure. It, so this is in a little town called Charlestown, West Virginia, kind of a county seat. Um, if you're a history buff, not too far from Harper's Ferry, we're uh, kind of a Civil War place. And where Charlestown's claim to fame is we um, we are the place where uh, John Brown was hung. <laughs> so so after his uh, attempted insurrection, um, they brought him to the county seat and put him on trial for um, treason and then hung him in my hometown. Hmm. So um, the, the question, I think, was, you know, why did the church, after 100 some years, uh, tear down a building? But we had outgrown the facility, basically. It was one of those Akron-style plan uh, buildings where everybody's kind of in a semicircle with Sunday school classes in the back and up above. And the church had outgrown that space and needed to build a larger sanctuary. And instead of adding on to an already old building that the leaders at the time believed it was best to literally tear one building down and build another almost on the same spot. Hmm. And so that's what was done. And, um, and again, it was a very huge change in style from very intimate, you know, and stained glass to kind of this long cathedral or not, not quite a cathedral style, but a, a long colonial style with clear glass um, is what was built. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine a lot of people just really opposing that. So that's really interesting that that church leadership was willing to, you know, literally demolish the building and build new to better <laughs> right. and serve the you know current needs of the congregation. Um, <clears throat> so, Dwayne, you know, one reason I wanted to talk to you today is because you are an affirming pastor. Um, and I thought it might be helpful to start with maybe defining terms, you know, what is affirming versus non-affirming, you know, what are some of those terms that people use to define or describe their, their positions on the LGBTQ issue? Sure. So, um, I, you're right. I would put myself into the affirming camp in our, uh, tradition and the United Mothers Church. We're kind of a split family at the moment. Most people know that our official book of discipline still says, that we find homosexuality incompatible with the teachings of Christ yet. The same book of discipline says all people are made in the sacred image of God and are of sacred worth. So we kind of speak with a forked tongue, we might say, in our book of discipline. And in the Western jurisdiction here, uh, the bishops long ago and the churches long ago kind of settled the issue and said, we're going to embrace our entire congregation, serve our entire congregation. And so when I moved here 10 years ago, I kind of said, can you clarify that for me? <laughs> and uh, the bishop at the time said, you know, well, it means if you have a, a gay member that needs a wedding, you can do the wedding. If you have a gay member that, you know, so they can serve anywhere they can be. Part. And I was like, OK, this is cool. I'm in a new place. And so for uh, the last 10 years, that has been our operation here at Cathedral is that um, folks were always kind of welcome but there was probably a season where we weren't um, sure we were affirming in the sense of could you serve anywhere or could you be served in the sense of could you be could your wedding be done you could be you could receive communion you could receive the sacraments 
but we hadn't gotten to that place. And so since I've been here, we've just gone and said, you know, we're either in or out. So we're, we've been fully in and said, uh, we'll serve the members of our congregation and our community. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I know a lot of people will say, oh, of course, gay people are welcome at our church. But then, you know, when it comes to those questions of, well, can me and my spouse or partner get married? No, no, we don't do that here, you know, or, you know, can I serve in this ministry or that capacity? No, no, I'm not so sure about that, you know. And then people find out, well, maybe you want me in the door. You maybe want my tithe money, but I'm not sure you really want me here. Um, And so, yeah, so I think that's a, a very important distinction to keep in mind, that difference between, you know, welcoming versus affirming, you know. And so with affirming, you... You're a full member of the church, just like anyone else. Um, so that's right. Yeah, and so you said that the bishops there had settled this long ago. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, or whatever you know light you can shed on their thoughts and decision making process. Um, well, let me. I think I want to tell you my journey first, because okay. for me this was a bit of a journey too. Um, I, I started kind of in the classic. Um, orthodox, we might say, Christian stance of um, male and female, Adam and Eve. And, you know, even as a youth pastor, I had the old line, not Adam and Steve, you know. Um, So I went down all that. But in seminary, uh, one of my best friends in seminary uh, came out to me, essentially, and said, well, um, but I'm gay, and I'm seeking ordination, and I feel called by God. And I'm And I remember it just kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. And it was the first time um, or one of the first times where I had to really think through my beliefs. And and I remember asking kind of dumb questions like, um, should I pray this out of you? (laughs) You know, do we how do we pray that you are healed? Do do we pray you find a a, a mate? What what do we do? And just in that conversation and in relationship of listening and finally going, uh, my friend is made in the image of God, just like I am. This is their natural uh, inclination. This is whom they're attracted to. Why would I be against that? And why would I want um, them to to fight that? And so that was kind of the beginning for me of I got to rethink this and I got to reread the scriptures and I've got to re-engage both, both sides of the argument. Um, fast forward, I think, um, maybe 10 years down the road and uh, some, uh, a college student in my congregation comes home and says, uh, I need to see you. And, and she came to see me and she said, I want to I want to come out um, as a lesbian uh, to my parents while I'm home. And you're the first person I'm telling. And I'm thinking, again, where was this class in seminary? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, luckily, I had some gay friends and I said, let me call some friends and talk to them about how do you tell your parents and when do you tell your parents and long story short we helped her come out tell her parents who were members of our church she'd been someone i'd baptized she'd been a member of my congregation um and then fast forward from that story she meets in the wesley foundation um her girlfriend who is a seminary student and then they come back and say uh this is probably again 20 years ago we want to get married and can you do the wedding and I was in Ohio at the time, and 
I, at the time where I was, I said, I, I can't, they won't let me do the wedding. I can't do the wedding. I, um, it, I could lose my credentials, um, but I could come to the wedding. And, and she said, could you, you know, can you pray at the reception? Of course I can pray at the reception. Yeah, no problem. So even in that moment though, um, in a congregation I'd been a part of for over 10 years, for many people, that was a bridge too far. It was, um, you're endorsing, uh, this by being present. And I, and when I would ask, well, what would you have me do as this person's pastor? It was don't go, <laughs> don't attend, uh, don't be present. And I said, well, this is a person we baptized. This is a kid that was in our youth group. This is a kid we supported in school. Um, how could I not be present? And attending that wedding, they, they did their wedding. They had a UCC pastor do their wedding. And I remember sitting in the congregation and thinking, who else in my church can I not be their pastor? You know, in this moment, I'm not allowed to be her pastor. And I thought, if, you're, if your child, you know, uh, commits a crime and ends up in prison, I can still be their pastor. Um, if they're in prison and they decide to get married, I can be their pastor. Um, and I kept thinking, this is the only person I'm prohibited from being their clergy. And it was, I was so thankful for a colleague that had, that was able to do the wedding, but I almost couldn't stay because I felt like I have failed this family. I'm not serving as their pastor. So when I got to, to Idaho, um, of all places and found that the conversation kind of had ended over here, that there was no more conversation and there was no fear of being brought up on charges because the bishops were like, we, we don't believe that's a justifiable rule. Um, then I said to my leadership team at the church, um, hey, I need to know where you are on this idea. And they were like, well, we're supportive of you making your own decision. And I said, well, here's where I am. I'm going to do the weddings, but we're not going to set a church policy. We're just going to do the weddings as they come. And, and I didn't want to set policy because as soon as you set policy, someone wants to change the policy. I, I just wanted to set the norm so that when someone comes and they go, have, do we do gay weddings? We, we can say we've been doing gay weddings for 10 years. Um, this is a norm for us. We do them in our building. We do them in our chapel. We do them in the community. If people are members of our church or connected to us, we're glad to serve them just like we do anyone else. So we've tried to make it normal, if that makes sense. Um, I can't really speak to how the conversation took place here in the West, other than I would tell you they just were ahead of the curve. And 20 some years ago, um, kind of settled this in the Methodist church and said, we believe all people can be called by God. All people can be ordained. All people can serve. And we're not going to, we're not going to deal with that anymore. And so they just kind of normalized it. So sorry, my other phone's ringing. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So that's a, a really fascinating, um, a really fascinating journey. And I want to kind of go back to a couple of things you mentioned, you know, you said your friend in seminary, you know, he came out to you and part of your reaction or thinking was, you know, why would I have you fight against your natural inclination or your natural attraction? Um, and I know a lot right. of people would 
start quoting Paul about the flesh and the spirit, and they would say, well, we're, you know, the Bible says right there. Now, not only does it say, you know, homosexuality is a sin, but also it says right here, we have to fight against our flesh. Um, what would your, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, I think I think the it's it's great that we have these um, scriptures that are prohibitive, but we have to at least for me when I've dug into them, not one of them is talking about um, two adults in a loving relationship that want to make God the center of their relationship. They're all talking about power over, and and we recognize that culturally it tended to be men with young boys uh, in most contexts and that that was a cultural norm. And, and so, you know, this is this is not these are not addressing the issue which is in front of us, which is we have two loving people who see God as part of their life and want to want to come together in, in a bond of marriage. Why would we get in the way of that? Um, so that's where I would start the conversation, you know, and say that's for me, as I hear the scripture, um, I think we don't have anything that's prohibitive. The sins of the flesh, we all we all deal with that. We all struggle with with um, certain things that are, not, you know, once I'm in a committed married relationship, I have to struggle to stay in that committed married relationship and know where the boundaries are and figure out what's what's um, appropriate and feeding my soul and what's inappropriate and not in a, is not helping my soul. And so I constantly have to set those boundaries. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, and so, you know, we could get into the Bible a little bit if you want, you know, because I, like I mentioned, a lot of people will point to certain passages or verses and say, well, I mean, it says right here and that settles it. Um, but as you point out, when you start to look into the social, cultural and historical context and you start to try to figure out, well, what exactly did uh, the biblical authors mean by these ancient Hebrew and Greek words in their context, it gets a lot more complicated um, at, at the least. Um, and so I'd like to hear, you know, how uh, you understand and interpret some of those those verses people point to. Yeah, you know, those have become what we call clobber texts because that's what we tend to do with them, right? We clobber people with them and we don't seem to have much grace. And we... Um, What's, there's a beautiful Rachel Held Evans quote about, uh, and she says it better than I will, but essentially you can find a scripture to support whatever you want. And, and that's true. We know it. We can find scriptures to, you know, I think she says, if, if you're looking for beauty, you'll find beauty. And if you're looking for horrible things, you'll find horrible things. Again, she says it better than I do, but that's true as we read scripture. And so as we look at the whole council of scripture from Genesis to Revelations, I think even with these seven or eight isolated texts, when we take them out, we have to say, what, what was, um, how does that, how does the whole council of scripture speak to that? Does God, would God prohibit a loving relationship between two adults that are making covenant with God? Do we have texts that speak to that? I would argue no. Um, some might argue, well, what about the uh, he made us male and female, you know, text, uh, the text that tend, we tend to look at with marriage. Um, but I think, with, you know, with those texts, we, we just have to say, um, does God does God prohibit uh, two men that want to get married because it says male and female? You know, if you go back to creation, uh, 
the creation story, um, I think what we find is, you know, when God creates day and night, well, it, that includes everything in between, right? It, um, it doesn't just turn from day to night. If you think how we get from day to night, you know, we get through dawn, kind of first light, and then we get full light. So everything's included. So when God creates us male and female, it, it includes everything in between um, those those parts of creation. So if you are a trans woman or a trans man, um, that's included in the creation story. And, and we tend to read them as kind of black and white, like one or the other. We forget. No, no, it's the whole, you know, and creation is included. Yeah. Again, I think that's well said, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, you know, you also mentioned, you know, at your church that you didn't want to set policy, um, but rather you just wanted to normalize the practice, um, which, you know, from an organizational point of view and a leadership point of view just strikes me as very brilliant. Um, because like you said, if you set policy, now you're writing stuff down and now you've got something for people to uh, pose or support and nitpick and whereas if you just start acting on the policy you know the informal policy you know people kind of figure oh well, this is our culture here this is what we do this is what we're about um did you experience any pushback or any opposition or concern from the <clears throat> congregation yeah i think that there's always a tension right and the tension we've stepped into was Prior, before, prior to my arrival here 10 years ago, the previous pastor had done a great job of kind of opening the door and saying, um, we're, we're supportive. What, what, where he didn't want to go was like, so we had some groups that were gay affirming, but they weren't public. We, we had some gay staff, but it wasn't public. Um, we, we didn't speak publicly necessarily in support of LGBT issues, but we didn't speak against them either. And when I got here, it was kind of, well, the door has been open. Let's go through it <laughs> and let's be, let's be honest about who we are. And so the gay uh, small group that was here, I said, why, you know, advertise, let, let, let others know that you're present. Um, we, a couple years ago, we have a flagpole out front, um, sadly, which has an American flag on it. I haven't fought that battle yet, but it's not in the building, but it's out front. So we added to that flagpole, the LGBTQ flag, trans flag is on that flagpole because we're right across the street from a high school. So I thought, well, I would love these kids that walk to school walking by my flagpole with an LGBT flag. That's it. So they remember, oh, that's a church that's saying to me, I'm okay. I'm welcome. And so we've, we've had the sign for many years in front of the church that says all means all. And, and so the question is what do you know, when we say that, how do we live into it? How do we live into it? Well, it means that um, there are LGBT folks in leadership. It means that there are LGBTQAI folks that are part of the body. Um, and just about every level that you can think of, you can speak from the pulpit, you can you can uh, there's there's no prohibition right now but it does mean at times when we're when we're bringing in outside leaders uh, sometimes we have to think what do we do if that group is not fully affirming can they come and i tend to argue that of course they can come if we don't ever have groups that are different than us come we eventually have a very small conversation 
And so, uh, but there are times where we might say, um, do we want that person to come and speak if we know they're anti-gay, right? Uh, if it's uh, if it's not a dialogue, if there's no way for us to say um, who we are in the midst of that, uh, we might have to think through that. We might have to think through, is that a person we would welcome into our space? Um, so then you go, well, all doesn't mean all. I always say all means all doesn't mean everything goes. All means all means we are working to include everyone we can. And we say at communion, I kind of have this little thing. I say, you know, our table, we have an open table and our table's open to all and all means young and old, rich and poor, black and white, gay and straight, Republican, Democrat. And then I add, because we're here in Idaho, Broncos and Vandals, the two main teams. Um, but I, the most shocking thing in that to me is, is Republican and Democrat at the same table, not, not gay or straight. All right. It's the fact that, are you kidding me? Republicans and Democrats can be in the same church. Um, so that is the challenge, right. Of inclusion. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, you know, you said that I love that quote, all means all doesn't mean anything goes. Um, I, I think sometimes people become worried about affirming or even accepting LGBTQ people in relationships within their church or their denomination because they fear a slippery slope. It's like, well, what, you know, if we're right. we, well, I think first they ask, you know, why are we doing this? Are we just catering to the culture around us instead of standing on biblical truth? And then second, you know, if we are catering to the culture around us, um, you know, then where does that end or where does that stop? Does just anything goes? So I'd love to hear you speak to maybe both of those uh, issues sure. you know, or concerns. So I, let me let me share two things. One is um, I've probably been in this affirming stance and growing uh, affirming stance for 25 years. Um, and I have four adult children. Uh, one of my adult children about five years ago uh, struggled to come out to me. Now, for me, that blew my mind because I'm thinking, wait a minute, my best friend's gay. Um, we've got a rainbow flag hanging from our front porch. I wear a rainbow stole most of the time. You know, this is not an issue for me, but my child who came out still was afraid of rejection, maybe because her dad's clergy, maybe because we're a religious family, but there was fear that, and, and of course our response was, we love you. <laughs> you know, so we just, you, you're just going to have to help us understand when we misspeak, when we, when we're not aware. Um, now in their journey, the next step was for them about two years later was to say, actually, I'm not gay. I'm trans. Mm. Right. And my and I'm changing my name from a male name to a, a female name and I'm changing my pronoun and probably the pronoun change has been the hardest one for me. I, I slip up every every other sentence, but I can correct myself. But she is um, a part of our family and her siblings got it like that. You know, her siblings immediately were like, oh, our sister. And so I even had to redo the mental gymnastics of. Oh, I have three daughters and one son, not two and two. And, and that, you know, I'm learning to tell that conversation. But I share that to say, if 
if someone has grown up in an affirming church and household and they still carry anxiety and fear about coming out, what is it like for the person who goes, I know my church is against this. I know my pastor is against this. I know my parents are against this, but this is who I am. How do they ever come out? Um, I mean, what courage it must take to come out in that context when you know the answer probably is, you're not welcome here. Christmas Eve, we were doing one of, you know, we had just gotten back in the building a couple months ahead and we were doing Christmas Eve service, a big Christmas concert, actually a couple weeks before. It was before Christmas Eve, Christmas concert. And um, I looked up at one point and thought, I see four people singing or playing instruments that all have been asked to leave other churches because of their sexuality. And all four of them were like home run hitters. And I was like, you other churches are idiots. <laughs> These people are made in the image of God. They're glorifying God. And look at the gifts they have. And they're not allowed to use them in the church they, they feel connected to. But they found it here, right? And I was like, oh, man, that's painful. But, I mean, we celebrate it. We've received. <laughs> but I thought, how many more are there? that can't find their way in. So you have to take me back to your question. I'm kind of preaching now. So what, what was <laughs> No, it's fine. That's that's a those are both lovely stories. Um I was asking, you know, some, I know some people will I've heard people say about everything from um worship style to liturgy to Bible studies to the LGBTQ issue, well, we could, shouldn't cater to the culture around us. You know, we should, you know, right, and, right. and so what I hear in your story is what do you, what exactly does that mean? You know, that we have a group of people who face immense obstacles. Um, and, you know, as you described so well, I think, you know, for a person to come out as gay, knowing that their family, their church, their pastor, their friends are probably all going to have a negative reaction. I mean, that that's, uh, if it is a choice, that's a heck of a choice. You know, who makes that kind of choice? Um, and right. so I think that is really, um, you know, to people who worry, well, are we catering to the culture? Maybe the better question to be asking, you know, after hearing your story that you just told is, you know, who are we harming and who are we loving through our, our culture, our actions? Um, so, yeah, you want to add anything to that? Well, I think you had started to at one point to ask, you know, the slippery slope question yes. that there's yes. this fear of what's next. Mm -hmm. And not long ago, a younger colleague called me and said, um, hey, I think I've got uh, polyamorous family in my church that wants me to do uh, the baptism of their child. So just for those that are listening, well, what, you know, so this is, this is more than uh, two people in the relationship, three people in this current, and the one they were, he was speaking of. And he was like, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, let's talk about it. So we talked, I said, are these to your experience, people of faith? Yes. And he said, I didn't know they were in this kind of relationship. I said, I get it. Um, can you honor their request for baptism? Yeah. I said, now, I think I could say yes to that, too. Um, 
I said, now, what would you do if they said, would you do our marriage for the three of us? And he went, oh, my gosh, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> and, I, and I said, yeah, I don't have at the moment the capacity to even think through that yet. Um, I'd have to I would have to reengage the text. I would have to I would have to come back and say, what does this say about? Because to me, just as some people would say, well, when you put two men in a marriage, that's not a marriage. I would I'd be saying the same thing. When you put three people in a marriage, is that a marriage? Right. So it's redefining. And so I would have to really think through that. Um, I think one of the beautiful things, though, right now in our culture is um, sexuality is openly accepted in ways we've never seen in our life. And there's a beauty and a fear that goes with it. I've got some parents of small children who will say, you know, my seven-year-old, my 12-year-old boy identifies as a girl. And so we're letting them do that. And there's part of me that goes, wow, that's really amazing. Or when they say my five-year-old, I'm like, five? Where do we know this? But there's a beauty to me that people are able to listen to how they were created and who they are that most of us in American society never had. We were given that you're a boy or a girl, you're pink or blue. These are the options for you. And then, and we all have tragic stories of friends or family that tried to stay in that lane, even got married and then could not, could not maintain the relationship because it was not who they were. Right. And they're broken families all along the path of people who could not listen to their body, um, who were filled with shame from church around their sexuality. And they they just couldn't make You know, they couldn't pray the gay away. And, and so there is a beauty right now in letting uh, families and children and young adults listen to their who are you? How did God create you? And um, and maybe at a level that I'm not even comfortable with myself, right? Because I've come up the old way. Um, yeah, um, yeah. It's so interesting you mentioned polyamorous relationships um, because I haven't. I won't say that I've thought through that in a great deal of depth, but I have actually thought through that one a little bit um, because uh, just uh, Sharon. Sharon Hode Miller, um, Christian author and speaker, had written on Twitter some time ago asking the same question, you know, what exactly what do we make of polyamory? You know, can that be a covenantal marriage like between a man and a woman or, or what what have you? Um, and some different people responded and chimed in, including myself. <laughs> and not that any of us had really the answer, um, but I think we were all interested in engaging with that. Um, back in college, I was an English undergrad major, and uh, in a literature course, we wrote this. We read this story called, I think, Old Haryol, and it was about a Native American man who had two wives. And then the missionary converted him to Christianity and said, "Okay, now to be now that you're a Christian, unless you want to live in sin, you've got to get rid of one of these wives." <laughs> And the three of them had been so happy together, just like a blissful kind of marriage. And this, you know, made them very sad that his options were, you know, get rid of one of my wives or burn in hell. Um, and 
you know, that just, for some reason, that story has really stuck with me, uh, at least to this to the extent that when Sharon Hood Miller asked that question, I immediately thought of that story. And when you mm. brought this up, I immediately thought of that story. And so I, I get where you're coming from. And, and having thought through this a little bit myself, where mm. I've kind of currently landed is I have serious questions about how well a relationship of three people, a polyamorous relationship could bond with each other. Um, like that would not work for me. Like, you know, I, I would definitely feel my bonding to one or both of those people fraying. Um, and so I would have serious questions about that part of it. And, um, but then at the same time, you know, I feel like if I could get to know, the couple or thruple or what have you and uh and really get to know them deeply and see like actually they are just as bonded as me and my wife and they're solid not there's this works for them somehow some way that i maybe could get there you know and and supporting and affirming that relationship and that's not to say that that's you know necessarily how i'll feel you know, 10 years from now, after I do more thinking and research or hear more stories from people. But I think it is to say that, like you said earlier about yourself, you um, put a lot of thought into it, right? And so I think that's so important. Like, it's not anything goes, it's, oh, I need to put a lot of thought into that and reach what I think is the best, most loving, most Jesus-like response or position um, so, uh, so yeah, just kind of building off what you were saying, you know, I guess, uh, you know, the stories you're telling and kind of my experiences would lead me to that kind of response, you know, well, no, it's not that anything goes like we still believe in monogamy, <laughs> you know, we still believe in biblical, other biblical ethics and morality. Um, but we are thinking open to thinking differently and learning other people's stories and experiences and, and, um, trying to figure out how to love like Jesus. Um, yeah, now I'm preaching. Do you want to <laughs> jump in and add anything to that, correct anything? Sure. So I, I would say a couple of things, Eric. One of the one of the things for me is I'm, I'm looking at Christianity these days, not as a, a set of doctrines I must believe or truths I must live, but what if Christianity is a way of discovery? Hmm. You know, what if it's a way of discovering uh, God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus? And if what if that's what Christianity is? And I think sometimes we, 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 we get stuck between Jesus, the church, and Christianity. We forget these are different pieces of the puzzle. And so um, I'm trying to say, I, I really think Christianity is about how you continue to discover God's love, which doesn't mean truths don't exist. But it might mean that my understanding of that truth expands or it changes um, or, you know, um, as 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 does all of life. You know, the things we believed in, the boundaries we had earlier change as life grows and then they shrink again and then they change again. Um, so I, I'm kind of looking at it that way. Um, and so that helps me to. I mean, I would I would be willing to say in the midst of this, you know what, I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong on this sexuality stuff, but I still read the whole counsel of scripture 
as a book that would tell me to lean into the grace for the two that want to be one and say, have a covenant with God and be married. Now, could I do that if you said the two is now a man and their dog? <laughs> could I do that if someone said it's, um, you know, an 80 year old and a 12 year old? No, no. For me, those those are those those are clearly kind of black and white. No, those don't fit in this boundary. So but, you know, we are thinking Christians. We, we have been given a mind. And so how do we engage the text? How do we engage the live text of God in our life? And so, you know, I think it is a journey. I think we start where we are, but then we have to be willing to say, is there another way? Um, is there another way to live this? Hmm. Um, and so I'm learning as a father of three daughters and one son, I'm learning um, to have what it means to have a trans child um, I'm learning to watch them enter the world and uh, try to live their life in a way that's valid. And, um, and I'm learning, you know, that some people, some people it's, it's tough, right? They can't, they can't make the transition, you know, of what's going on. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I didn't actually know that you had a trans daughter until this conversation. Um, and so I would, be very interested if you're willing to share. I realize this might be a little personal, but if you're willing to share a little bit about what led to your daughter to identify or recognize her identity as a trans person, and then you know what that process or transition has been like for you as a father. Sure, I think uh, when any child comes out. Um, and this isn't a good or bad, it just is a reality. There's some grief that happens, be and it's grief because you have uh, imagined them a certain way. So if they're a boy, you've imagined them a certain way, if a girl, a certain way. And so the grief is some the death of some of those things you've imagined. But there's also the gift of, oh, okay, this is who you are. How do I now imagine um, who you are Right. My dreams for you in a new way. And um, so that there, there's some of that. that and there, you have to do some some mental gymnastics. Sometimes, you know, uh, uh, the father or the mother has to walk through that. Well, was I not man enough? Was I not woman enough? Did I not give a good example? Was I a bad example? You walk through all that and eventually you have to kind of go. This is not about me. <laughs> This is about who my child is. But even for me, uh, as my daughter said, I, I don't want to go by the name you gave me. Well, that was a name that was a family name, right? It has meaning for me. And, and I took it personally at first. I had, why are you rejecting the name I'm given, right? But if we think of kind of baptismal names, as we think of God renaming, sometimes you need a new name when you understand your new call. And so as we've tried to live into that new name, you know, I, I'm honoring that name um, as she goes forward. And so it does, you know, there are some things you have to do. I would encourage anyone in this process to say, I hope you have a either a good spiritual director or a good counselor or both. 
Um, I would say that for the child, if they're coming out, I hope you're doing counseling or some form of uh, coaching that allows you to hear your life speak. Um, I would hope you have a doctor that has worked with trans people before so you can make clear decisions if you're going to do hormone therapy or what are you doing? And, and there, you know, there's pieces of this puzzle. You, you just have to say, I don't even know the questions. You know, so I had to say to my daughter, um, are you seeking like total surgery? Or are you going? And she said, no, no, I'm not, I, I don't plan to go that way, but I am doing the, I do want to do the hormone therapy. Okay. All right. Um, and then, you know, you learn things like she says, and uh, my girlfriend's coming over and I'm like, wait a minute, you're, you're, are, is your girlfriend a girl? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> And yeah, why would, why would you have said that? Because uh, I don't know. Um, okay. You know, so it's sometimes you just have to say, I, I don't even know how to ask this question. And you have to just say, but I'm asking it because I'm trying to be supportive. And then you also have to be willing to say, if there are times my language is not appropriate, would you help me with that? Um, so one of the things that's done for me is... Um, I, I often, uh, as I am reading the scripture, uh, neutralize the pronouns uh, as much as possible. I don't think we can never say Father God or Mother God, but I do think we can we can find a more general middle ground a lot of times in the text. And when I tell stories, I try to do the same thing, that it can be a them not a him or a her, so that everyone can see themselves in the story. And so it's learning that, you know, what what's appropriate or what's not appropriate, but even simple things. Well, where do you go to the bathroom? Right? In some states, there are laws about that. And so we had to, in our church, say, do we have any non-gender specific bathrooms? And so we had to make sure we said, yeah, actually we do. Let's make sure people know where they are. And so... All right. That was a simple thing. There's just a couple non-gender specific bathrooms in our building and there's signs by the ones that are gender specific that say where they are. So people can make the choice about where they're comfortable being. But it, sometimes it's the logistics. How do we learn these logistics and how do we learn them as a family? And, um, you know, different parts of the family. Uh, jumps in the conversation more readily. Cousins and uh, my siblings, so uncles and aunts have been very good. My mother's almost 90. Um, it was, you know, she, she heard the story. She got it. And I just said to my daughter, look, she's never going to get your new name. But most of the time she doesn't call me by the right name. <laughs> So that's all right. <laughs> she goes through all the list of my siblings before she gets to me. She's going to call you by your given name originally before she ever gets to your new name. Don't worry about it. It's the way it's the way I'm treated too. So there are things you you just go. You know, I don't have a great expectation that my mother, ninety year old mother, will fully um, get this, but she tries. That's what I watch is she tries to use the new name. She'll correct herself. Um, when she'll say the original name and then she'll say, oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, winter and she'll get to the new name. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. That's kind of a funny story. Um, my mother-in-law will often call our son by her son's name, you know, instead of Strider, she'll say Jacob. Oh, I mean, Strider, you know, 
So yeah, there's, I guess there is something certainly to that, that, you know, you've had your whole life, you, you know, had this child and now you have a new child and, and, you know, in all families that, that kind of confusion happens. Um, that roll call takes place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I interviewed, um, Natalie Grace, um, for this podcast before and she's a trans woman who I encountered through Twitter and I thought you know trans issues are kind of a big thing they're in the media but I mean how many trans people do I know you know I, I don't really know any trans people and this person seems to be uh, active and wanting to educate people so I reached out and she was kind enough to come on the podcast and um, and she was fantastic I mean answered pretty much any question I wanted to ask. And, and so I was very curious, uh, you know, what led her to this change? Uh, because I have never, you know, long before trans was such a, a national, received so much national attention, I've never understood what could motivate someone to put their body through all of that, to put themselves right. through all of the social and cultural upheaval and I thought, if someone's willing to do that, they must have a really good reason. And I respect that. <laughs> and I may not understand it, but I respect it um, because I don't think I could do that. Um, no matter, you know, and, and Natalie uh, shared with me in her story that it really was for her a life, matter of life and death. You know, it was either, you know, uh, try to be who I knew I was or commit suicide. And so, you know, I really... Uh, commend your daughter and commend you and your family for um, choosing life, so to speak, and, mm. and living that out. Have you had any kind of those kinds of conversations with parishioners or other pastors where, you know, you end up kind of talking about grace and saying, well, hold on, if we believe in grace, then why are we arguing so much about this? Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, why have we, why is this the issue we want to draw the line on? And even in my denomination, um, this will be the issue that we walk through some form of splitting on, just like the Episcopals and the Baptists. I mean, everybody's done this, right? And we're a little slow to the table because we're an international denomination, and that's kind of slowed the conversation. Um, it's interesting to me that this is a place we can't be graceful. Um so you're making me think, where's that place for me? Um, maybe my place of least grace is when people um, can't continue the conversation, right? When people think, I've got the answer and you don't. And, and unless you agree with me, you're going to help. Um, I'm like, wow, okay. Um, you know, there are a lot of times where we've made this so much about heaven and hell and and Jesus heals people and doesn't mention heaven or hell. Um, you know, Jesus does a lot of the work of reconciliation and again, doesn't mention heaven and hell. And I wonder if we've missed the point that it's about life and bringing a little bit of heaven and earth together as we pray in the Lord's prayer. Um, more of that than it is about how do we get people a ticket to eternity? Um, so, um, it's a, it, you know, these are challenging, challenging subjects. And, um, it's, we all have some that are, are barriers for us, but for me, this is not one. I'd rather be a church that people say that you'll be welcome there. 
Um, and I'd rather stand on that side and, um, and, and I keep learning of, you know, are there things I'm doing that are unwelcoming, right? I have to, I have to stand in that tension. So like right now, um, I'm asking the question, uh, as we watch the world fight war again, do Christians really believe in nonviolence? And I find that I've been so enculturated, even in the church, to celebrate um, righteous violence that I don't know how to answer the question, right? And yet I think, um, you know, that line, um, Jesus chose to die rather than kill his enemy, um, is who the church was called to be, and we were for 300 years. But for most of the time, we have not been. So, again, that's kind of that new place of, okay, how do I stand in grace with my own culture that wants to celebrate every Russian tank blown up? Yeah. And a little bit of me that wants to do that, right? Yeah. A little bit of me that wants to celebrate David getting Goliath. And yet, is that is that even Christian culture? So, so you know, so where do I have grace for that conversation? Uh even with myself. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example uh, and, and a good one to end on. Um, so, Dwayne, I I know you're you know pastor at Cathedral of the Rockies, and uh, but is there? And I'm sure people can Google your name and that phrase and find you. But are there any other ways that people could connect with you or your church online and support you in the work that you're doing with your church? Sure. You know, um, if our sermon podcast is all means all. So if you Google all means all podcast, it'll come up our sermon podcast um, coming up in um, in May of this year. We, we have a two day little event called Northwest Leadership Institute, and that's open um, to it's an in-person event. Um, but we will have Bishop uh, Karen Olavito, who is the first openly gay bishop of the United Methodist Church. She'll be one of the speakers. Uh, Reverend Michael Bowie, who works primarily with African-American churches in the United Methodism and, and myself, and we'll be having conversations over those two days. It, there's a great student discount of like 25 bucks. So um, it, for folks, to, that if you're in the Northwest and you want to come, come. We usually do. We try to um, broadcast like at least one evening of that free. And so if you watch our watch our social media you might be able to catch a conversation with Bishop Karen as she um, part of one of the reasons we're doing it is we've done this for years, but this year's conversation is kind of how do you, how, how are you to be the church um, after COVID in the midst of war, in the midst of this economy, in the midst of racism, what does it mean to be the church and how do we do this? So that's kind of where we're coming together. Sure. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Um, Dwayne, thank you so much for this. Interview. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. <laughs> I did. Thanks. Great. Appreciate the time, Eric. Hey, there you have it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Dwayne. I think he made a lot of really good points and he expressed them very well, very succinctly. Um, I don't, I will go on record as saying, I'm not sure I did the best interview I've ever done. You know, I kind of was stumbling over my questions and words a little bit at times, but uh, Dwayne hung in there with me and I appreciate that. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, if you want to connect with me, you know, and uh, continue this discussion and dialogue offline or off podcast, 
um, you can email me at jameserickcentel at gmail.com um, and we can you know have that, those kinds of conversations if you would like because I'm interested in this topic. It's a big issue, a big topic that affects the United Methodist Church as well as many other churches. Um, and so I'm you know more than willing to have you know this conversation or continue this conversation um, off the podcast or off air if you'd like. Um, and if you want to come on the podcast and talk about this or any other issues um, or any other topics or your own faith journey, you know, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to, to arrange that interview with you. Thank you so much for listening and God bless.